The episode you're about to hear is sponsored by Journal of Experimental Biology. The journal is published by the Company of Biologists, a not-for-profit that has been supporting and inspiring the biological community since 1925. JEB publishes research about the form and function of organisms at all levels of biological organization. This season, we are partnering with JEB to highlight the research and scientists that they publish. We work with journal editors to identify a topic that's perfect for big biology, then we produce the episode with the same rigor as we would any regular one. On this episode, we're talking to Doug Fudge, a biologist at Chapman University, about several papers he's published in JEB on hagfish and their slime. Here's the show. The first animal to arrive when a whale carcass falls to the ocean floor is almost always a hagfish. In the darkness of the deep ocean, these long and eel-like fish look like monsters from a horror movie. They have vestigial eyes, weird faces, and rely on a keen sense of smell to find their food. Their real superpower, though, is slime. If a predator tries to bite one, a hagfish will release a ball of otherworldly slime made of mucus and silk-like threads. Researchers think hagfish use this slime to deter predators, but it may have other uses too. There's a good chance you've seen pictures of this hagfish slime. In the summer of 2017, a truck carrying thousands of pounds of hagfish crashed on a highway in Oregon, dumping slime all over the road and totally engulfing nearby cars. Go ahead and Google it. We know you want to. We'll wait. Okay. Doug Fudge is a biologist at Chapman University who studies hagfish, and he says looking at pictures of the slime just doesn't do it justice. So there's, there's several things that are surprising about it. One is that it's just so dilute, right? So you put your hand in, and it's like, yeah, there's something there, but it's very subtle. It's like, you know, a three-dimensional spider web or something <laughs> with a little bit of mucus associated with it. And then, you know, you, you reach in and you can lift out a couple kilos of it out of a bucket. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. How, you know, it's not there, but yet it can support a couple kilos of weight. It's solid water. Yeah, it's really kind of amazing. After studying hagfish for years, Doug has become intimately familiar with its slime. But there's still an incredible amount of basic information that we don't know. Given the extreme depths where these fish live, they're hard to study. And it's not clear how they breed or how dense their populations are. Doug is trying to fill in some of those gaps. In addition to studying the basic biology of the hagfish, Doug's lab focuses on how engineers might be able to build useful materials from components of its slime. He's especially interested in what we can learn from the slime's protein filaments, which are incredibly strong for their size. This process of looking to nature for engineering inspiration is called biomimicry, or bio-inspired design. We're already using an enormous number of natural designs to develop human technologies. For instance, bullet trains in Japan have aerodynamic noses inspired by the bills of kingfishers. Also, architects have drawn inspiration from termite mounds to help them build more efficient buildings. And a German company recently imitated dolphin clicks and whistles to create an underwater data transmitter, which is used in tsunami early warning systems. The list of materials and solutions inspired by nature is long, but there's still a lot to learn. Doug says one of the best ways to find new bio-inspired solutions is simply to understand basic biology better. He says biologists need to gather information about organisms we know little about and pass that knowledge on to engineers. To copy something, you need to understand it. And 
a lot of these things that we want to copy, we don't fully understand yet. On this episode of Big Biology, we talk with Doug about the weird biology of hagfish slime and inspiration we draw from nature for engineering solutions. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Well, Doug, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Um, it's great to have you on. And um, we want to just start off by talking about hagfish. We, we want to get into a lot of details about hagfish slime and bio-inspired uh, materials that can possibly be derived from that. Um, but we wanted to start just by by talking about hagfish themselves. Um, so maybe just tell us a little bit about the natural history of, of hagfish so so. Who are they related to in the world, and where do they live? So hagfishes are a group of marine animals, uh, exclusively marine. Um, they tend to be found in deep water, and that's why most people have never met a hagfish. Um, they are an ancient group that's been around for a long, long time. Their, their closest living relatives are the lampreys, uh, another group of jawless fishes. And um, the, the biology of hagfishes is interesting. They, they are mostly scavengers, or they're, they're best known as scavengers. So when dead things fall to the bottom, usually it's a hagfish that's the first animal on the scene taking advantage of that. Um, they, they are known as predators as well, but they're amazing at the scavenging lifestyle. So, so how, how do they find dead things as they fall down? Do they have incredible senses of smell and can detect these from long ways away? And, and how far away do they come from? That's a really good question. We don't know. We're, you know, we're doing more studies, like biodiversity studies. Uh, we were just in the Galapagos last year, and we're putting down these baited remote underwater video rigs um, and just to see what shows up. And it's it's almost always a hagfish that shows up first. It's really impressive. Um, so, you know, there's lots of scavengers that live in the deep sea, but hagfish just have this suite of traits that allow them to get there first. And then, of course, they have the ability to defend those, um, you know, nutrient-rich uh, falls. And we could talk about that later, but they've got some clever adaptations. So, so, so how generalist are individual species of, of hagfish? Are they, do they specialize on particular kinds of dead things or, you know, do they take all comers? That is a really good question. We do not know. Um, there's limited uh, stomach content data for hagfish, but, you know, the hagfishes are pretty diverse. There's 82 described species um, that's going to go up when we publish our paper from the Galapagos. Um, there's weird things like, you know, there's two species in the Galapagos that we found that they're both from the same genus. They look pretty similar. Uh, and we always saw them together, but they're clearly two different species. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of interesting questions about what is driving hagfish speciation. So I'm, I'm really intrigued by their ability to get to these um, carcasses first. What are their densities like? Is it just that there's lots of hagfish everywhere, or are they just able to move long distances quickly with this high sensitivity? 
I think they're pretty dense. At first, I thought you meant like, what is their actual density? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. They sink right to the bottom. Population, huh? <laughs> yeah, not, not that kind of density. That is an interesting question, actually, because um, most hagfishes are negatively buoyant. So they, they sink when they stop swimming. But we recently caught some black hagfish, which uh, overlap in their range with the Pacific hagfish, which is a very well-known species. And one of the things that we were amazed by about the black hagfish, we actually brought them back to the lab and they're almost perfectly neutrally buoyant. So they, they swim around in the tank and they stop and they just stay wherever they, wherever they are, which is kind of amazing. I don't know why that is, but um, anyway, so hagfish density is interesting in more than one. And, and I mean, do you think that that's because they spend more time midwater? Uh, no, these are deeper um, the black hagfish are found. In fact, the deepest ever recorded hagfish was about 2,700 meters, and that was a black hagfish. But I guess it is possible that they're they're spending more time above the bottom. So they, I mean, are they, do we know anything about their capacity to deal with such pressure? I mean, and they must be exceptional among fishes to <laughs> given given what they eat. Yeah, they. Um, I mean, they don't have a swim bladder, so that helps, right? So they can move up and down without worrying about blowing up. Um, and, you know, we bring them up from a thousand meters and we hold them in tanks in the lab. As long as they're cold enough, they do fine. So they don't, you know, they don't thrive, they don't reproduce. Um, so maybe there's some subtle things going on with pressure, but, you know, they don't. They don't explode like a lot of fish with swim bladders do if you bring them up. Uh, I was going to say, just I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, the collecting in the Galapagos and just, just the adventure aspects of that. So so do you you put down, do you chum for hagfish? You know, put down traps of some kind and pull them up? They're actually really easy to catch because their sense of smell is so good and because they're so good at squeezing through tight spaces. They're one of the easiest fish to fish for. So you, you put down, it's usually a, an eel trap type rig. Um, we make them out of five gallon buckets. We didn't have any enough room in our luggage um, allowance to bring our traps with us. So we had to buy five gallon plastic buckets there and then fit them with the cones. But yeah, they're, if they're there, you're gonna catch them within an hour, I would say. So uh, I, I got to ask, how do they how do they breed? What do we know about their reproduction? We know very little about their reproduction. Um, so there's one lab in Japan that has managed to raise embryos and to have, have actually hatched little baby hagfish. Um, they're direct developers, so there's no larval stage. So it's little baby hagfish that pop out of the eggs. Um, the eggs are really interesting. They're quite large as fish eggs go. They're, you know, a centimeter or two long. Um, and one of the things that the lab that had this success figured out is that if a hagfish sheds eggs in a tank, like let them sit there for a couple of months because they're just really slow developers. Um, so we've been doing that in our tanks and, and they don't develop. They just, you know, eventually rot. Um, but we, you know, we don't know if they're, if they're mating in burrows or, you know, 
if they have internal fertilization, external fertilization, like there's major amazing. kind of amazing not to know those super basic, basic things. Basic right? things. Yeah. What What about um, hagfish fisheries? Are there cultures that catch these regularly and eat them? Yeah. Well, there's there's Korea is basically the one culture that regularly eats hagfish. Um, you might have seen a couple summers ago. I think it was three summers ago now, um, there was a truck carrying live hagfish that crashed oh, yeah. on a yes. highway. The picture Oregon. is all over the web. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that there's a fishery in Oregon and they're catching live Pacific hagfish and they're shipping them live to Korea for the, the hagfish, you know, food industry. Um, and they, you know, the restaurants have them live, sort of, sort of like, you know, Maine lobsters in the U.S. Huh. Have you tried it? I have never tried it. I've heard it's not very good that like, you know, if they taste the way they smell, then I'm not. Can you, can you describe what the smell is like? It's just, you know, it's a little fishy, um, okay. you know, and their lifestyle is such that they, you know, maybe it's because when we trap them, we're putting rotten fish in a trap. And so they come up and it's pretty disgusting and there's slime <laughs> and then there's, you know, they're, pooping and vomiting into the slime and the, you know, and it's rotten fish. <laughs> so I have a lot of kind of olfactory yeah. uh, associations with hagfish that are not very pleasant. <laughs> so you asked a question about density before and I took it in a different direction. Um, yeah, sure, sure. So that's that's one of you know we're interested in. There's not a lot of data really we can collect from these uh, videos from the baited remote underwater video rigs, but one of the things we can look at is sort of arrival times, right? So one of the things we've noticed is that the, the hagfish always arrive from downstream, which makes sense if they're you know they're living in complete darkness at 800 meters, or whatever. Um, so they're using their sense of smell and they're coming upstream to, to find the bait. Uh, but we can measure, you know, when does each hagfish arrive and how long does it take them and how many arrive. And so we can start to estimate things like, you know, how far does the smell go and, and how sensitive are they at picking up that smell. Um, what's interesting to think about is that there's probably hagfish just upstream of the trap you know, like a meter away and they have no idea that no idea. Huh. That the, mm-hmm. the bait is there. That, that's super neat. Um, and it makes me think of the, the literature, the terrestrial literature I'm more familiar with about insects and especially moths, um, you know, casting back and forth to try to find the source of a, of a smell, like a pheromone uh, emitted from a female. And I mean, these hagfish have got to be a lot more difficult to study, but do you know, do they have similar searching strategies in relation to plumes of smells? They do. So, I mean, they are, you know, they're long and skinny and they, so they swim like an eel, right? Actually more eel-like than an eel. So anguilliform <laughs> swimming was, was named after baby eels. And it turns out that adult eels actually keep the front of their body straight, but that's another story. So, but, but adult hagfish, you know, wag their head back and forth. So it's basically like a sine wave moving through the water. Interesting. All right. So I think we've been talking 20 minutes about hagfish and I don't think we really said the word slime yet. This is sort of strange. Let's say it. 
Let's talk about slime. Um, so they are famous for this slime, and this is something you've been studying for a while. But it's—I mean—you're not the first to do this. Scientists, I think, have been interested for you know at least a hundred years, probably longer. W- what's been the topic? And you know, maybe start with a bit of a history lesson. What what happened in the pet past? What were the first things that people asked about hagfish slime? So yeah, Linnaeus was the probably the first one to really say anything about hagfish and the slime. Um, so he often had these these punchy little descriptions of the you know thousands of animals that he was describing and giving names to. And for the what we call the Atlantic hagfish, Mixine glutinosa, which is basically twice named for slime, mixing slime, glutinosa means... <laughs> slimy slime. Slimy slime. Um, his little description was, uh, enters into fish, turns water into slime. So <laughs> pretty good, pretty good summary. Yeah, of, that's it, done. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was Linnaeus. Um, as I said, Darwin mentioned hagfish, so people knew about them and they knew about the slime. Um, there was a guy named J.D. Ferry who um, was qu- is quite famous as a sort of polymer physicist and chemist, and he published a paper in 1941. Uh, and if you read that paper carefully, it's it's pretty discouraging. Um, basically, he's got this statement that I put at the beginning of my PhD thesis, which essentially said it's impossible to study this stuff because it's just so heterogeneous and weird and it's just impossible to study. <laughs> and so I, fortunately I didn't come across that paper until I was too far into my PhD to uh, abandon ship. Because <laughs> um, he was an amazing scientist and, and he did figure some things out. And then there was a, a little bit of a, a golden age of hagfish slime in the 80s. There was a group... Um, I believe in Chicago, and they had some funding from like asthma foundations um, interested in, in mucus. And they did a lot of really good um, molecular biology and uh, cellular biology on, on the slime. So they, they described the slime glands and the cells that give rise to the two components of the slime. And really... When I came along and started my PhD in 1997, you know, that was really the foundation that I had to build on. Um, so my PhD would have been very different if, I, if those people hadn't done that work. So you mentioned that slime is comprised of a couple of different things. And um, I mean, maybe tell us a little bit about that. I know you've published some papers in the, the Journal of Experimental Biology, um, among other journals on this topic. But um, I, I know when I was reading those, how it works and how it becomes slimy is not really what I would have expected. So you want to talk about its composition and how it takes on that slimy trait? Yeah. So, you know, we call it slime, but all the other things that we call slime are quite different from hagfish slime. And, uh, you know, anyone who experiences hagfish slime in person, have you guys ever? No, I haven't had the fortune. (laughs) I've, I've seen it once at the Friday Harbor labs. Um, a, a group brought up a, a hagfish and they had it in a bucket and all of us like, you know, stuck our hands in the bucket to, to feel the slime. And it was astonishing. 
So there's, there's several things that are surprising about it. One is that it's just so dilute, right? So you put your hand in and it's like, yeah, there's something there, but it's very subtle. It's like, you know, a three-dimensional spider web or something hmm. with a little bit of mucus associated with it. And then, you know, you, you reach in and you can lift out a couple kilos of it out of a bucket and it's like, that doesn't make sense. How, you know, it's not there, but yet it can support a couple kilos of weight. It's solid water. Yeah, it's really kind of amazing. And then you start playing with it and you realize it's kind of like a bag of water. Like it just, but there's no bag, right? Like it's just a bag and, and water is kind of seeping out of it. But anyway, it's, I've never met anyone who's interacted with hagfish slime who was like, oh yeah. That's exactly what I expected. <laughs> you know, it's really kind of shocking on many levels. But so you were asking about the components. So there's... Yeah, how does it come to have these weird properties? Yeah, so so there's mucus, and that's what why it's called slime. Um, but then there's these fibers that are um, silk-like fibers. So they're silk-like both in their dimensions. They're only a micron or two in diameter. And they're also really strong, like spider silk. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things we figured out is that, you know, there's about 25,000 individual silk-like fibers in your typical mass of slime that a hagfish gives off. So that's about a liter mm, of wow. slime. And then you've got these 25,000 uh, silk-like fibers. Um, each of those is made within a single cell. So that's something that I've been working on since the beginning. And hopefully, you know, I will have figured a few things out by the time I retire. But um, and, and, and you mean so one thread per cell? One thread per cell. So you've got, got, you've got one cell that's, they're actually, as cells go, they're very large. They're over 100 microns long, just visible with the naked eye. But when they unravel, when the thread unravels from that cell, it's about 15 centimeters long. Wow. Um, and they can stretch to about 35 centimeters before they break. So that's where you get this kind of macroscopic behavior from microscopic components. Um, so, the, And then there's the mucus side, and the mucus is produced by specialized cells called gland mucus cells. And like other mucus cells, they're packed with uh, mucus vesicles. They're membrane-bound vesicles. And unlike other mucus cells where they sort of release via exocytosis a little bit of mucus at a time and it kind of swells and makes this kind of mucus barrier, these cells get ejected entirely out of the cell and they rupture on their way out. So that's a, a special type of secretion called holocrine secretion. And there's something happens when those membrane-bound vesicles hit seawater. They, they swell up um, and then they interact with the water and with the silk-like fibers in a way that produces this final product. That process we don't fully understand. We've been you know, coming at it from all different directions and under the microscope. And, um, and I can't say with confidence that we really understand what's going on there. Hmm. 
So I'm fascinated by this sort of bursting of the cells. Is that a mechanical process or a chemical process that mucus is released? We think it's mechanical. So there's a, a very narrow pore that the, both types of cells have to squeeze through. Um, and we think that they, the membrane gets sheared off as they get squeezed out that pore. Okay, okay. Now, are these cells and the fiber cells distributed everywhere in the body, or are they localized to places likely to get bitten? So, so there are specialized glands. So a Pacific hagfish has about 150 slime glands. And they are kind of down both sides of the body, um, sort of segmentally arranged. And yeah, there's really no good place to bite a hagfish without getting slime in your mouth. They're pretty much They've arranged it that way, huh? Yeah, it's a pretty, (laughs) pretty good design. We wanted to turn now also and just um, talk about the possible functions of slime for hagfish at a more organismal level. And I was particularly interested in... uh, a 2006 paper of yours uh, in Journal of Experimental Biology led by Jeanette Lim that tested out what you call the the gill-clogging hypothesis. And I think we've, we've kind of alluded to this already about it, the defensive nature of slime, but maybe maybe just talk about that gill-clogging hypothesis and, and what that paper examined about that. Mm-hmm. So th- this was an idea that was in the literature at the time, but had never really been tested. And, and the idea is that you know, this, the real function of the slime is to get on the gills of fish predators that try to eat hagfish. So the, the hypothesis goes that you know, a fish comes along, maybe it's a suction feeding fish, sucks a hagfish into its mouth. And in the process, the hagfish releases a whole bunch of this stuff from its slime glands. It uh, you know, mixes with seawater, forms this amazing fiber-reinforced slime, and then that gets on the on the gills, and basically, you know, just gums up the gills and prevents them from doing their job, which is you know, gas exchange. Um, so that that's that was the hypothesis, and and we reason that if that's true, then um, we should be able to add some slime to an isolated fish head apparatus, if you will. Um, <laughs> the vivid image. <laughs> there is an image in, in the paper. You can see the, the rig. Um, and it should you know, dramatically increase the resistance across the gills, basically clog them up, in other words. And that's, you know, that's exactly what we found, um, is that the slime is really good at, at clogging the gills, even at fairly low concentrations. Mm-hmm. Any idea in the wild from observations? Uh, is, this, is this a reasonable mechanism for explaining interactions between wild fish and hagfish? And, and does, does this kill the fish predators, do you think, or does it just deter them? It's a really good question. So in 2011, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Vincent Zinson, who's in New Zealand, um, published a paper that we were just blown away by. It was one of these BRUV studies, baited remote underwater video studies. And it it was really 
uh, part of a biodiversity study. So they were putting, you know, baited cameras on the bottom and, and seeing what showed up off the coast of New Zealand. And oftentimes it was hagfish that showed up. Um, but then uh, there were often these larger predators that showed up, probably attracted to the bait, but also attracted to the, the hagfish themselves. And so they, in this paper, they published video of, I think it was nine different species, and some of them in multiple occurrences, uh, coming in, being attracted by the bait, and then at the last second deciding, ooh, there's this you know, yummy hagfish here. And they, they actually attack the hagfish. And so we have amazing video of nine different species of fish trying to eat hagfish, all of them unsuccessful, huh. including some pretty, you know, tough looking sharks that were, you know, biting down on the hagfish. Um, and that's something we hadn't really thought about much. Um, I'd always imagined it as suction feeders sucking the hagfish and the slime into their mouth and sort of mixing things up. And, you know, that would be really bad for the fish and really good for the hagfish. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about what would happen if a shark tried to bite a hagfish. Um, but amazingly, the, the sharks were just as repelled uh, as the suction-feeding fish. Huh. Neat. Hmm. So what do you think the slime is doing there? I'm envisioning biting into a sort of unbiteable gummy bear <laughs> or something like, I mean, what, why, why can't the shark, why is it changing its behavior? Yeah. So, um, so we published a paper a few years ago, um, in collaboration with Adam Summers. I don't know if you guys saw that paper. Yeah, um, and it came out of this question of like, what, you know, we watched this video over and over and over of this shark coming in and biting a hagfish and then kind of recoiling in disgust and then swimming away with a massive blob of hagfish slime streaming out of its mouth and its gills. Huh. And the hagfish looks totally fine. Just, just goes back to, you know, feeding on the bait basically. And that image kind of really stuck in my mind. And, and eventually I realized we had to, investigate that question and the, and the question is how do they survive that first bite so the slime was not you know we watched that video frame by frame and, and it's very clear that the the shark comes in hagfish is feeding on the on the bait shark bites as hard as it can on the hagfish and then the slime is released yeah so why isn't the hagfish dead yeah so the, yeah. the slime is not protective from the bite at all. Um, and so that very simple question, how does it survive the first bite led to a, a master's project with a student um, named Sarah Boggett in my lab. And, and she did an amazing job answering that question. And essentially the, the answer that we figured out is that hagfishes are, um, they have this flaccid body design. So they've got a loose skin and there's lots of space between their skin and their body. And so when a shark tooth comes through their skin and their skin doesn't really have special kind of anti-puncture properties, that's the first hypothesis we tested. If a tooth comes in, um, there's so much space there that the body can just kind of squish out of the way. <laughs> 
so kind of pre-designed to be bitten. Uh. Yeah, I mean, it's it to me that it that adaptation sort of goes hand in hand with the sliming. Um, huh. So you know, you got to be able to survive that first bite, or else this is not going to work against something like a shark. Mm -hmm. All right. So, so one other, I, I think, obvious question, and that is, how do the hagfish keep from suffocating themselves by releasing slime? That's a good question. So the, the easy answer is that they, they can tie their body in a knot. So this is something that only a small number of animals in the world know how to do, and, and that is to tie their own self into a knot. So they can do an overhand knot or they can do a figure eight knot. Um, and it's not just tying the knot that's important. It's they, they pass themselves through the knot and they basically that wipes the slime off of their body. Huh. So they, they can get trapped in their slime, but then they just start not tying in that. And, and is that like a time limited thing? So if they're in a slime ball, they have to do this within a few minutes or they're going to suffocate or no, are they, are they also good at dealing with hypoxia? They're this event? amazing at um, dealing with hypoxia. So um, a colleague of mine at the university of Guelph, Todd Gillis. Um, so he and I shared a lab for a long time and he worked on fish hearts for uh most of his career and um, he eventually came over to the dark side and started working on hagfish hearts and one of the things he figured out is that hagfish hearts will continue beating in the absence of oxygen in isolation from the hagfish huh. super good anaerobic capacity yeah which wow. makes sense if you know they're they're burrowing into mud you know, they have burrows in, in fairly anoxic places. And rotting things on the bottom of the ocean. They're yeah. burrowing into carcasses where, you know, all the oxygen is just gone, right? All the bacteria right. have used it up. Right. Man. So they also have, um, their gills are, uh, you know, they have a different anatomy from a jawed fish, right? So if you're a shark and you're trying to eat a hagfish, the unfortunate thing is that your food has to go past your respiratory surfaces. Um, and that's the, you know, that's the hagfish's opportunity um, for escape. But a hagfish, it's, it's respiratory water comes in a giant nostril on the front of its head uh, and the food goes in a different place. And so they, ah. they keep the, the water and the food. No interference. Separate. Yeah, and they're sort of the gills are kind of tucked away, so they're not going to get fouled by the slime. Yeah. All right. So, so last functional question about about slime. So, are, are there other conceivable functions of it? You know, for example, do they use the slime in the carcass somehow to, I don't know, block block competitors from getting into their burrows, that sort of thing? There is some evidence that they use it as a sort of anti-competitor strategy. Um, so if you look at video of hagfish feeding, you know, at bait that's been put down with a camera, even though they know hagfish have been attacked, occasionally you see slime kind of appearing. And it's almost like, you know, they, they give off the slime as a way of, uh, you know, keeping competitors away. Got it. So there's, there's not a ton of evidence for that, but, we, you know, we've seen it multiple times. Um, we should probably you know, publish a paper on that eventually. 
Why has, or maybe has it happened and I don't know, Marvel or DC not made a character around the Hagfish? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. You about, everything you just talked about, it sounds like that has to be an amazing know, superpowers. Or a villain, but, but there's so many cool things that it can do, right? Aquaman has no chance against the Hagfish. <laughs> it's a really good question. So, um, you know, they, they've got these fibers that are silk-like fibers, right? And Spider-Man shoots silk out of his wrists, right? Which is not how a spider actually makes <laughs> the silk, much. right? The silk has to be actively drawn out by an external force, whether it's, you know, the spider dropping down or walking away. Um, so spiders do not shoot their silk. Um, there might be some weird spiders that do that, but for the most part, they do not do that. Hagfish, they do. They shoot this stuff with, as like a little jet out of these slime glands. Um, so I think that's way more exciting than... All right. Well, let's let's set up a, a consulting session with um, one of the comics companies here soon, and we, we can get this going. <laughs> For sure. So... Um... I mean, I don't know how much your original motivations of working on Hagfish Slime had to do with the its practical potential purposes. It would be interesting to hear about that part. But what are the sorts of things that it might be useful for? What's it being used for now? Yeah, so when I started working on Hagfish, um, I was in John Gosline's lab at, at UBC in Vancouver. And I actually started um, my PhD working on squid. That was the plan. And... It, John really wanted me to work on spider silk because that's really what the main thrust of his lab was then, and that's where most of his funding was coming from. Um, but he was also just an amazing supervisor and just let me choose what I wanted to do. So I decided squid because I wanted to stay in marine biology. And um, this was 1997, and there was a, one of the biggest El Nino events ever in '97. And John very shrewdly figured out that uh, I was not going to be able to get squid to work on because of the El Nino. And this had happened to a previous student of his. And so he said, you have to work on something else. And in retrospect, I'm pretty sure he thought I was going to switch to spider silk. Like that was, he was. (laughs) You're like, okay, buddy, I'll switch. (laughs) Thank you, El Nino. Um, And so. I didn't, I, you know, I just gave myself, I think it was a month to just go to the library every day and read about stuff, which you can do as a first year PhD student. Um, and I just, you know, hagfish slime just kept coming to the top of the list. There's just so many things about it that were interesting. There was enough known about it already that it, I knew that I could get started pretty quickly. Um, it, then when I found out that they had these fibers that might be silk-like, I knew I could sell that to John, who was interested in you know silk-like fibers. Uh, he had had a previous student who worked on slug slime, so that you know the slime was an easy sell. Uh, and then I discovered that the fibers are related to keratin uh, proteins, and he just had a student. Mario Casapi had finished uh, a PhD on horse hoof keratin. So there were these like three amazing overlaps with, with John's lab. But I, I had no, you know, expectations about biomimicry at that point, even though the spider silk stuff, you know, that's why people were most excited about spider silk at that time. 
and the military was really putting a lot of money into it. Um, I was just, you know, this kind of geeking out on, on the biology. Um, then, you know, I started doing what was available to me in the lab, which was doing tensile tests of these fibers, which is what all the silk people were doing. And pretty quickly figured out, wow, these, these fibers are, are pretty special and they're almost as good as spider dragline silk, which is kind of the gold standard for amazing biomaterial. And, and by good, you mean like really strong for how big they are? Really they strong, are. really mm -hmm. tough. Yeah. So, you know, like not as strong as Kevlar, but tougher than Kevlar. So um, like really impressive. And so, you know, when John saw that, he was all on board. Um, and so I, I really spent most of my PhD doing tensile tests of these silk-like fibers and characterizing their properties. Um, and it wasn't later that we, we realized, you know, the, the people who are working on spider silk biomimicry are really having a tough time of it um, for many different reasons. And this is a, a completely different model, right? These are unrelated proteins. They evolved independently. This is an intracellular fiber. Um, the proteins are much smaller. They're not repetitive. So it seemed like, you know, maybe we, if we could sort of get around all of the obstacles that the spider silk people were encountering by looking closely at this different model. And so we, we did do that. Um, for several years in my lab, tried to make materials out of hagfish slime thread protein. And what happened? Did it work? So um, it's it's still ongoing. So I'm not doing it in my lab. Um, I sort of realized that there's people who, you know, are good at this stuff, and um, I've, I've been happy to let them sort of take it over and, and take it forward. Um, but in the, so in the early days, we, we just wanted to see if we could do like a proof of concept where we took the, um, silk fibers apart and then, you know, asked ourselves, can we make them into a reasonable material? And so we basically dissolved the protein and then drew fibers from it using this special technique. And the short answer is, you know, we could make fibers but they were mechanically just pathetic compared to what the hagfish does. And, th and that was not that surprising because we were destroying all the, the protein structure in the, in the process of dissolving them and not really building it back up again. Um, so, and then we, and we came at it from a different angle and we tried to introduce some of the uh, protein secondary structure using a self-assembly step and that did improve the properties quite a bit. Um, and there's a, there's a group in Utah that's uh, working on this very actively right now who I collaborate with. Hmm. Is it, I think I remember reading in some of your material um, that it's not really viable economically to keep large numbers of hagfish and just work with the slime that they're producing. Has that been tried? Yeah, I'm not wild about you know, farming or ranching, I guess it would be, uh, hagfish and, you know, stripping them of their slime. I, I just, I think, you know, the exciting thing about biomimicry is that you, you get the interesting idea from the animal or the, the organism, and then you sort of 
talk to the engineers about how to do it. So, so the solution would be to, yeah, f- figure out an industrial process that didn't involve the hagfish, you know, so, somehow built those proteins and then assembled them correctly in a industrial process. Yeah. Yeah. And you can okay. get bacteria to make proteins, um, you know, pretty effectively. Hmm. And that process, I think that process has been attempted. I mean, how is that suffering for any of the problems that you were mentioning? It's a totally different technique, but does that seem to be a viable option so far? So I can't really talk about it because um, it's one, it's not in my lab and it's not published. Um, but, uh, you know, they're, they're definitely making progress. So there's hope for me being able to buy a hagfish slime shirt before I die. I think so. I think there is. Okay. Okay. Good. I'll, I'll keep an eye out of my, my local REI. So we've used this term biomimicry a couple times, and it might be fun to just have a broader conversation about, about biomimicry as a, as a thing. Um, so, you know, what, what is biomimicry and what, what are the prospects for, uh, use, using it to do useful and interesting things? Yeah. So this is something that I've been interested in, um, since I was a PhD student in the, the late nineties, um, because I was in this lab that was working mostly on spider silk. Um, and so that there was a lot of buzz about biomimicry at the time. Um, I actually prefer the term bio-inspired design to biomimicry. Yeah. I like that um, too. Because I, I like this idea of kind of distilling out the essential idea or, you know, the, the, the innovation that organisms come up with sometimes is, a, is an idea that we can copy. Um, we don't need to copy the thing itself or, you know, steal the thing itself. And so I, anyway, so I like, I like that term a little bit better, bio-inspired design. I think there's kind of a spectrum of, of bio-inspired design. Um, on, on the sort of extreme end is this idea of like taking something, just kind of stealing it from the organism, right? And we've been doing that for a long, long time, right? Taking wool fibers from sheep and, and making materials out of them. Um, but I think bio-inspired design in its sort of purest sense is this idea of uh, figuring out what the organism is doing on a conceptual level and then applying it and sort of handing it over to the engineers so that they can. So you sort of abstract the process or the, the strategy that the organism uses or the, the design. You know, as a, as a scientist, it's, it's, I, I find it really engaging to talk to engineers about this kind of process because engineers typically don't know anything about biology and I don't know much about engineering and there's some really interesting stuff at that interface. Um, so, you know, when, when I was thinking about this stuff in the late nineties, it was, you know, spider silk and Velcro and, you know, there are a few other examples that were kind of pie in the sky and, it's been kind of amazing over the last 20 years to see what's happened and, and the number of biological adaptations that actually have given rise to new products or are actively in development for new products is, is really amazing. 
when it comes to hagfish, the slime is conspicuous, but are there other bioinspirations that you've had or others have had about what hagfish could, could lend practically? So um, we did a, a study on hagfish burrowing um, a few years ago, um, and that was in JEB. Um, and that was inspired by an observation that some of my students made on a, on a hagfishing trip on the East Coast. And we noticed that a hagfish in a hagfish trap was squeezing itself out of the bucket through just a tiny ventilation hole. Like we had just drilled these holes so that water could go into the trap. And this hagfish had no business squeezing through this hole. Like it just looked impossible that it was doing this. And so again, that was one of these observations that led to an entire project. Um, and so we, we built these little escape rooms for hagfish and, and basically quantified like how, how small a hole can a hagfish squeeze itself through. And the answer is, you know, a pretty small hole, like half of its body width it can squeeze through. Um, and they have all these kind of behavioral techniques for kind of pulling themselves through and then they use knot tying as well. Um, so, you know, there, I think some of the most exciting bio-inspired design innovations that have come through in the last few years, a lot of them are in robotics, right? Like you think about George Lauder's, um, tuna bot is, is really an amazing thing. Or, um, some of these groups in Germany that are making flying robots that mimic how a gull flies or how a bat flies. Um, these are autonomous robots that are really doing an amazing job at, at mimicking what those organisms are doing. So anyway, um, a robotic hagfish that can burrow, you know, through tight spaces would be kind of cool. We're just interested in, in general in this, this arena of biomimicry. And as always happens, Art and I have a little conversation offline before, before we chat with you. And, um, I asked him something that it's been, I don't think a ton about biomimicry, but as you do and have for a while, um, it seems to me in my naivety that a lot of biomimicry has been focused on um, sort of things as opposed to processes. Is that true? I mean, you know, we, Art and I think a lot about homeostasis and feed forward and feedback loops we've stolen long ago from engineering. But I, I, I don't know, we were sort of, questioning each other as to whether engineers have been inspired by homeostasis, some other process in life to adjust the things that they do. Do you know of any examples? Um, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with Tom Seeley at Cornell. He studies honeybees. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He came out and gave a talk in Montana last year. Yeah. So he's, I think he's, I don't know. I'm not even sure if he considers himself as doing, you know, biomimicry or bio-inspired design, but I, I sort of think he is because um, some of the things he's been figuring out about honeybee societies, you know, he's been writing these amazing books about, you know, how honeybees make decisions, for example, as a group. Um, so he's got a book called Honeybee Democracy and uh, the Wisdom of the Hive. And basically he's, you know, he's taking these, ideas that he's discovered by studying honeybee colonies and, you know, realized these are kind of good ideas for how to make decisions. 
Um, and he's, you know, trying to apply them to human, human societies and see what we can learn from that. So, so what do you view as the kind of frontiers in biomimicry, you know, what things that might happen over the next five or 10 years and changes in the way biologists and engineers interact? I mean, I think, I think the robotics stuff is going to continue at light speed. You know, I mean, we're going to have little, um, little drones the size of a bumblebee that, you know, you can probably buy on Amazon, um, which is going to be exciting, but also a little bit scary. Um, but the, I think the, the real kind of frontier is going to be at the micro scale, like at the cellular scale. So when we think about, you know, how does a hagfish thread cell produce a 15 centimeter long, like super strong and tough fiber within the confines of a cell, um, you know, when we figure that out and we're hoping that this NSF grant that I have right now is going to help us figure some of that out, uh, you know, will it be possible to apply some of those ideas to, to, you know, making eco-friendly fibers for industry? Um, so, you know, when you think about what cells are doing, you know, intracellularly, it's, it's even more mind blowing than what organisms are doing. Um, and yet I don't think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of kind of bio, uh, biocleptism. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but where we take, you know, enzymes from a cell and we, and we use it for our own purposes. But, you know, can we build things that are as, that are inspired by cellular machinery that are kind of new and, and doing, uh, doing new things for us. <laughs> so, and so where do you see your group contributing either in that arena or just in general, what's the project that keeps you up at night that you think is the next really exciting thing that needs to happen generally or, you know, with hagfish and their slime? So, you know, my feeling about biomimicry is that the there is a huge gap between the engineers and the biologists, right? So I, I had an engineer come to my office one time and he asked me what the chemical formula was for keratin. And I, I almost like did a spit take, but, um, you know, the, the, <laughs> that's like asking, you know, what's the chemical formula for the space shuttle? You know, right? <laughs> studying keratin. We're going to build one. We need the formula. We need the formula. <laughs> Um, and that's not to disparage engineers. It's just that they, they don't know anything about biology. And, um, usually when they say like, Oh, how does this work? Cause we want to copy. It's like, okay, well, we probably have to do about four more PhDs to get, get you that answer. Um, so, you know, when I was young and naive, I thought, you know, I'm going to do biomimicry in my lab. And, and now I've realized that the, the, most important thing that I can do is to do the biology and to do it well and to, you know, hand those insights off to people who might be able to do something with them. I, I think that gulf between 
the biologist and the engineer is sometimes just so huge that I'm not the one to, to bridge it. You know, there are people like George Lauder who, who managed to bridge it and they're building robots in the lab and then they've got actual fish swimming in the lab and everything in between. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm, I'm not I'm, probably going to do that. I'm with you, Doug. I, I've had a long-term interest in sort of small, small robots. And, and the thing that I would like to do in, in my lab is to use robots for sensing microclimates that are relevant to terrestrial insects. And, and one of my dreams is to have a box of, you know, a hundred or a thousand small insect-like robots that I could just open up at the bottom of a tree and they'll crawl all over it and sense all of the, the sort of climatology that's going on. And I thought at some point a few years ago that I should try to, you know, do that myself. Uh, and there's, there's just no way. I mean, I, I just don't know nearly enough about robotics and engineering. And um, so so I'm, I'm sticking with the biology for now. No, it's an important part of it, right? I mean, you need to copy something, you need to understand it. And yeah. a lot of these things that we want to copy, we don't fully understand yet. As we continue to learn more about the natural world, we can start seeing more designs drawing inspiration from nature. That could be new materials, such as the hagfish slime shirt art is dreaming of. But it could also include new medicines, new architectural designs, or new ways of transferring information. The difficult thing is that there's no systematic way to identify useful biological insights, which in effect is an argument for supporting basic research on all natural systems. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. We wanted to give a big shout out to our listeners for stepping up to the plate and donating on the show. We set a goal of raising $1,500 from listeners by the end of May, and you did it. We really appreciate that support, especially now. This is a huge victory for the podcast, so we plan on maintaining the current format through season three, thanks to your support. We'll take a break in July, but we're back with a new season in late August. And next year, you'll hear about spider venom, the role of chance in evolution, biological effects of light pollution, and much more. On the next episode of Big Biology, which is the last one of season two, we're talking to four biology students about their research and the experience of starting a career in science right now. Over the last few months, we've been collecting short audio clips of these students explaining their work and airing them on the podcast. We call this project Student Spotlight. We picked out four of our favorite clips and talked to the students who made them. We're releasing that as a standalone episode in two weeks. We interviewed Andrew Burchill, Ruth Demery, Jason Hagani, and Laura Plimpton. Here's a sample of what they had to say. What I love about ants is that they're like little robots. This all came because as a result of me deciding two and a half years ago that I wanted to do field work. So now my, my thesis is going to be mapping a human, a human mountain lion conflict out in California. It smells awful. Ugh. Pulling it apart, getting the DNA out of it, ooh. picking it up. We wanted to give a special thanks to associate producer Michael Levine for shepherding the Student Spotlight Project. We liked it a lot, so tell us what you think, and we could perhaps do it again in Season 3. I'm Stephen Ferguson. I'm a big biology patron, and I'm here to read the credits. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Michael Levine manages our social media accounts and produces the student spotlights, and Dana Baxter helps with background research and transcriptions. As always, Steve Lane manages the website. 
thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear.